Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Sarah Bay Jung of York University, and I am joined by Jordan Ely from the University of Maryland and Leticia Ridley of Santa Clara University. And as you will recall, these are our sometimes regular podcast uh, hosts, um, also representing their own podcast, Daughters of Lorraine. Great to see you both. How has your 2022 begun? I would like to say we out here surviving, doing the best we can. So 2021, or what? Oh, see, I'm even going back. What are we, 2022? We're in, we're in 2022, which is also a very confusing year for those of us on the academic calendar, because it sounds like we're talking about an academic year that has skipped uh, an academic year. So it's, it's yes. all, it's very difficult. Yes, I'm doing fine. Finest can be in the many tire fires we're all collectively putting out and individually. Yes, uh, same here. Um, it's a lovely day here in the D.C. area, but... Um, and also, you know, we're coming to the close of the best month of the year. Happy Black History Month. Um, I know this won't happy. be airing, you know, when <laughs> during Black History Month, but, you know, happy Black History Month all the same. So um, it's been a really weird Black History Month, I will have to say. Um, but, um, you know, we still celebrate it nonetheless. <laughs> Well, I, we can also think about, you know, the end of Black history as we transition to the ongoing Afrofuturisms. So, you know, something we celebrate and and highlight all, all year round. But but yes, happy, happy Black history, happy Black heritage, happy, happy Afrofuturisms to you both. Thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we are also joined by Jennifer Pierce, um, another regular co-host of ours. Um, Jen is a multimedia performance creator, user experience designer, and has been most recently director of Agile Research and Innovation for Mindtree, an IT consulting group. Uh, Jen, how are the user experiences out there? Very experiential. Thank you, Sarah. We, um, I have... Uh, been enjoying my time with Mindtree, getting to work across industries and in really exciting new areas. But I uh, have sadly, I'm saying goodbye to Mindtree next week, and I can't wait to share with you all where I'm landing next. I will be working in an NFT space, which is really exciting, and in a fandom space. So I look forward to the next time I come on the show and be able to share a little bit more in detail with what I'm working on there. But thanks for asking. And it is a beautiful day here, too, in uh, South Carolina. Since I, I am still in Canada, uh, we will skip over the weather report from uh, from here. Um, but uh, great to see you all, and and thanks so much again for for being here um, today on the podcast. We have three great topics. Um, we will be discussing the most recent film version of the Scottish play with Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand, uh, directed, of course, by Joel Cohen. Uh, we also watched a recording of Esther Kim Lee's talk, Dainty as Needs Be, Madam Butterfly and Cosmetic Yellowface, that was offered at Duke University. And we'll hear the latest news from the immersive storytelling studio at the National Theatre in London um, and what that might portend for the future of theatre and performance studies in uh, VR, AR, and R. Are we just are we gonna start referring to reality as R as like or IPR in person? Or R, you know, okay. Um, <laughs> it's not pirate month. Um, but first, uh, of course, as always, uh, we'll hear uh, a land acknowledgement. Uh, take it away, Jen. Thanks, Sarah. 
In respect to the land and people that preceded and coexist here with me, I am broadcasting today from the land traditionally belonging to the Catawba, Cherwa, Sugary, Watery, and Waxhaw peoples. I also acknowledge that the greater Charlotte region in which I dwell has directly profited from the enslavement and forced labor of African people and their descendants. This statement is but a small first step. I continue to strive to listen to indigenous and black voices and address the policies and powers that perpetuate oppression. Thanks so much for that. I think a, a little bit to those to those ends, um, thinking about you know what what future actions are and and how we might incorporate them. Um, I'm really pleased again to to gather with you all, and I, I I'll just say a, a brief thing too about as we are recording, it is uh, the uh, early afternoon where I am, uh, uh, Eastern Time uh, on the afternoon of February 25th. And of course, as many of us are also recognizing and following what's happening in uh, in Ukraine uh, and the the recent uh, aggression and military action uh, by Russia, and so I know that many of our listeners may have family, friends, colleagues, and ties to that region. And so, recognizing not only the oppressions of the past, um, how those are ongoing in the present, but but wishing us all a really you know solidarity and community uh, for the future as well. Um, to that end, we all collectively, though though separately, watched um, the latest uh, film adaptation of Shakespeare's tragedy of Macbeth um, uh, with Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. It was released in both in cinemas and streaming on Apple TV. Um, since release, the film has been nominated for three Academy Awards, the Best Actor nomination for Washington, Production Design, uh, and I, I believe it's production design, including production design and set decoration, um, and also the cinematography by Bruno um, uh, Del Bonnell. Um, film's been well received and, and demonstrates, um, I think, what many of us would recognize as a, a recognizably theatrical uh, aesthetic. Um, although my understanding from from the sort of Twitter hot takes is that there is some debate about whether that is expressionistic or uh, symbolist. Uh, you know, so uh, followers of Edward Gordon Craig might might have a strong feeling about that. Um, uh, and, you know, it's it's uh, it's you know, it's one of these works that kind of came in a hybrid form in multiple dimensions. Uh, but but when we thought life was opening and then it kind of receded and and so it, it we thought it would it really behooved us to to say a few things about this. And so Jordan, Leticia, I'll, I'll, you know what? Had you did you have you watched this film once many times? You know where does it sit in the in the pantheon of 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 Shakespeare film adaptations for you both? Yeah, um, I I I love that you mentioned like the specifically theatrical aesthetic because um, that was something that I really was interested in. Is like everything was sparse, like the sparseness of the film um, really is. I think in direct contrast to a lot of the Shakespearean adaptations that I have watched in my life, um, you know, there's a way in which it can be grandiose, even if it's, you know, more updated versions. Like I'm thinking, for example, example, um, Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes, right? Like this very big 
style of, of theatricality. And I, I appreciated this film's more grounded and uh, less grandiose approach to, to the story of that. Um, we're just kind of out of time, out of place. You know, we don't really know. <laughs> There's not like a, a ton of um, specifics regarding the mise-en-scene of the moment. But, um, you know, I was really interested in like the the way in which someone such as Denzel Washington, who has such a presence, um, was a lot more, um, uh, how do I put this? A lot, like, just more tempered, I guess. And it made those more, those bigger moments when he was kind of descending into madness um, and really leaning into that evil we love so much with Macbeth. <laughs> um, it really punctuated those moments because of his more tempered performance, um, I thought, which is, I, 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 as, a, as a huge fan of Denzel Washington's work, um, I was really excited to see what I feel is a very um, different style of acting than I'm usually used to with him. I mean, even if we take something like Fences, right? Troy is a very big, big character. And, um, and Macbeth has the... the um, capacity to be that big big character as well and so I was curious about the more the the different style than you're usually used to with something like Macbeth which re I really think lends itself to a more grandiose style of acting and a style of of design um and saying like no we're just going to strip things down and we're just going to let the language do what it does and these amazing actors we have um um, let the language speak for itself. And as someone who's not necessarily a Shakespeare scholar or, you know, who um, sees a lot of Shakespearean productions, um, Macbeth is one of my favorites. I love the story and I love the, you know, I love the darkness of it. <laughs> um, so I was, I remember watching it and, and talking to Leticia and being like, this was a little scary. <laughs> I was a little bit scared. Um, so I thought it was really uh, fantastic. So I was, I was really blown. I was really quite satisfied with this particular adaptation. Um, and I'm looking forward to Joel Cohen doing some more solo directing work. Um, I'm curious about his style. So, yeah. Yeah. And I'll just sort of add to, uh, what Jordan said. I watched it once. Um, I don't know if I'll be watching it anytime soon, but I did thoroughly enjoy watching it. You know, I am, also not a Shakespeare scholar nor a Shakespeare person, even though I offered this as a suggestion. Um, I was really here for uh, Denzel, a.k.a. Denzel, if you haven't seen that uh, <laughs> video circulating where he's like, this is actually how you say my name. Um, so I was like, oh, Denzel, I love his acting. And as Jordan can probably attest to, um, I'm not a big recognizer of actors. I know actors that are black famous, so I can like recognize black actors. <laughs> but if there's usually any other actors, I'm like, I don't know, is this, you know, who's this? Who's that? Um, but I, I I think it was just very well acted. I think they their choices were really spot on. One of the things I was most compelled about was the cinematography and some of the sort of the beautiful moments. That final death at the end was just shot beautifully. I, I think my jaw was like on the ground for at least five minutes. Um, and specifically when we think about how it's filmed in black and white, I think that was a really strong choice. 
And for me, it really sort of highlighted uh, the ability for them to sort of play with light and shadow in a way that if the if the film was color, we wouldn't be able to sort of play with those dynamics. And I'm reminded of um, Kim F. Hall's book, um, I think Things of Darkness. Mm -hmm. Things Ooh. of Darkness. Things of Darkness, where she's really talking about um, how the early modern period folks will sort of discount it and have, as having any sort of racialized language. But she points us to thinking about lightness and darkness as actually really being um, being sort of substituted for 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 race in in this time period. And I and when I was watching, I kept thinking of that. When were they in the shadows? When who was in the light? And those sort of dynamics. So I was really compelled by that and just really sort of tracking that across uh, the film. I, I think every every film history film scholar uh, has has a new example of uh, demonstrations of, of chiaroscuro uh, film lighting, right? Mm -hmm. You know, where they literally are going in and out of shadows. Jen, b before you were doing uh, a a NFTs and, and fandom, um, I believe you actually did do some some Shakespeare work and and attention. What what were your thoughts on on the film? Well, I was trying to think of some way to describe what Joel Cohn and Francis McDormand is doing because it's like a thing, right? It's it's the semi obligatory validity that you get by saying that you've tackled the bard on screen. You know, they, there seems to be this pattern of people that get to a certain level and they have a semi obligatory. Um, um, imperative to to direct Shakespeare to um and Joel Cohn admits that you know he he doesn't he came approached this as an amateur which I think actually makes it quite fresh um the other thing that struck me about it uh was that um in addition to the acting and Denzel is just absolutely stunning in it um and you know this is not his first Shakespeare film attempt I, I'm a fan of his from way back I'm a fan of his going back to St. Elsewhere people that's how old I am mm -hmm. so um <clears throat> I you know he was fantastic but the other thing that struck me was just sort of the self-awareness of form in media that we, we're all experiencing right now, which is going to bleed into our other conversations today, too, which is what is film? Why is it cinematic? What makes it theatrical? What makes it cinematic? And he was really playing in that space in very interesting ways and this sort of crisis we have. And he talks in an interview about how he would never attempt to do it on stage. He just is not able to um, even think about stage, but he wanted to think of a way to make the cinematic theatrical. And I always appreciate uh, reflections on that because that's what I reflected on as I watched it. What What is making this distinctly theatrical? And the third thing that I really wanted to call out is Catherine Hunter. My goodness. Um, first of all, uh, you know, first the first thing I thought of as well, hello, Gollum on uh, Macbeth, right? But then I'm thinking, wow, this is reminiscent of Andy Serkis with no CGI, which which was really a talk about reflection on media and what's theatrical and what's not and what the theatrical body, the theatrically trained body can do in the space. And speaking of theatrically trained bodies, there was a little Easter egg in there for us New York Gen X theater nerds, Jefferson Mays as the doctor, you know, from Ann Bogart's company was just a delight for me. I was like, ooh, uh, which, you know, made, made them uh, that little like a gesture or virtual signal towards uh, validity or artistic validity or validation for McDormand and um, Cohn. But I'm also longtime fans of them. So it was just kind of like a big talk about Easter egg, a big chocolate candy for me, the whole thing. Like it just was delicious in all ways. Um, was it something like that revolutionized my perception of the play? No. 
Um, but it really, but it really was just kind of like delightful and delicious. A hundred percent on Hunter. I, I, I thought that that was really a, a striking, a striking performance. And you know, I believe Charles McNulty has a, has an article in the LA times where he, he kind of rehearses the the film in line with other ad- film adaptations of Macbeth. But I think, you know, that you can, you can clearly see predecessors in, in Edward Gordon Craig's, uh, designs for and and also Apia's designs for Hamlet um and and Macbeth um uh but also I I felt like there were also moments of like Virgin Spring by Ingmar Bergman and some other great classic uh formal uh cinema uh you know sort of cinematographic uh very virtuosic filmmaking as well. So, I mean, there was, there was lots of stuff to, to play with in there. Yeah, Bergman and Fellini. There was, a, there was a, quite a bit of Fellini in there too as well, I think. Oh yeah, for sure. The camera sure. angles. Yeah. I guess if I could like also sort of offer in this conversation, if we're sort of a critical eye of the film that I'm always sort of curious about with sort of um, any Shakespeare and around casting and like who's casted in which role, I was curious about the inclusion of black folks within this. Um, and what at the end of the day it was saying, um, specifically with casting Denzel across, what is this woman's name again here? Uh, Princess McDormand, (laughs) (laughs) a a white woman, right? Um, there's certain sort of dynamics and histories that me as someone who is black watching this, am always sort of conscious of. So I was just curious about sort of those dynamics, right? Um, even that sort of final moment with Macduff and Macbeth, you know, get to fisticuffing um and there's two black men that then are fighting for this white man to become the king of scotland right i was i was curious about sort of those dynamics and how they also sort of read on stage if we're thinking about the casting and sort of um you know what actually happens once these bodies are put into this story and we're watching it so those that was i was just curious about that and like carrying his head like as this, you know, as this moment of like, huh, you know, it's, it's a, it's, I don't think that you're, you know, reaching in any way to think about those racialized dynamics because we also see the, the disruption of a black family, right? Like with um, Macduff's family, the child being killed, um, the, the wife being killed, right? So we do see, it's hard to not put it in that context, especially, you know, in this like current socio-political moment that we're in um, to, to watch that. And also I loved that scene. I thought that um, I believe her name's Moses Ingram. She was in the Queen's Gambit. I remember. Um, And, and um, the young actor who um, I wish I knew his name, but I know he's in Queen Sugar. Um, And that scene I thought was poignant, right? When you're thinking about those racialized histories um, around black people and like, racial terror and impending doom. Um, it's it's difficult to divorce like what you're seeing in the embodied experience from like, oh, this is just this just Shakespeare. It's like, no, Shakespeare's never just Shakespeare. <laughs> um and um and so I I also agree with you, Leticia, that what do we do with those sort of racialized dynamics? Um and and how, you know, even if we don't have a lot of dramaturgical certainty, like I think I I've, I thought about like an ambiguous dramaturgy that was kind of undergirding this film. Um, and so it's like you're just presenting this series of images. 
So what is the sort of point of view and perspective of like of things like race and gender, which Macbeth, I think, continues to um, has always asked those those questions or people who study Macbeth have asked those questions of the play. Um, so what does it mean to to present this kind of out of time, out of place, decontextualized version of the film, um, especially in this current sociopolitical moment? Uh, just a quick note, um, the son is played by um, Ethan Hutchinson. Mm. Um, so kind of following up on that, though, I mean, one, where does um, uh, where would you put voices and and more particularly accents mm. uh, in that? Because I thought one of the other interesting things is that, um, you know, and this is true with like, you know, and, and it, it, it struck me at first with Brendan Gleeson, who's the king of Scotland and just mm. comes out with a full on Irish bro. Um, and, and so, and then listening to the ways and, and one of the things that people did not do in this film was try to adopt a consistent regional accent or national, uh, uh, accent. So what, what did you make of the, of the voices in this as well? It, it felt naturalized in the sense of like, no one was kind of putting on airs. I read this interview where it was, they said that, the rule was no stick in the butt acting, <laughs> right? Like it's no uptight acting, um, no kind of putting on those Shakespearean airs that people want to do um, when they they finally get to embody Shakespeare some way. So um, in sort of tapping into their natural voice or natural accent, um, it felt more it felt more kind of naturalistic and realistic, even though we were were in again not necessarily trying to recreate the real. Um, and I think something about film, um, as someone who is not a film scholar, but like something about film is the obsession with making things realistic, especially when theater goes to film, right? So like, how do we take something that is, um, you know, on stage and make it film? So it's like, let me make everything make sense. Let me make everything um, feel more naturalistic. And so I think that by taking this very naturalistic vocal, vocal approach to something that is inherently a little bit outside of the real, um, created a really interesting dissonance that I'm not sure what it means, but, um, but yeah, I, I think it led to a more, um, uh, an accessible Shakespearean dialogue. Um, I think for people who may not like, like, I don't like when people are like, oh, theater for people who don't like theater or musicals for people who don't like musicals. But like, I think this could be a film that people who don't necessarily watch or enjoy or read Shakespeare could potentially find um, like their way into it because of that. Yeah, I agree with that. I'll say that I've seen some Shakespeare where people are just laboring over the language and it's like, it's really hard to sort of get past that. And I really felt like this film and perhaps, you know, why they decided not to sort of go to, with any sort of consistent accent was to make this the language feel very naturalized. And like when I was listening, I kept being like, wow, like there's just this is it sounds like how people sound outside of this film um, that made me, at least for me, feel more open to what was happening and actually made me pay more attention to also the language of Shakespeare instead of like, oh, my God, I don't know what they're saying. Um, so I actually really enjoyed that they sort of decided to sort of displace any sort of consistent accent. Well, certainly and film lets you whisper in a way that you can't do that in other in other areas. And so 
um, you know, and it's and it isn't. I'm mean, just to Jordan's point. I think there's a really interesting juxtaposition of the the naturalism of speech um, and with the unnatural environment. So you've got a very artificial physical environment, but also the sonic environment is very unnatural. So uh, I don't think I'm giving away any spoilers. Um, uh, he does it. <laughs> Uh, uh, <laughs> but but it was also like I'm thinking about like the the drips of blood, the drips of water, um, which was actually in in the Lady Macbeth um, out damn spot scene is a really interesting because usually that is portrayed as as highly imaginary as is the mm -hmm. is this a dagger I see before me mm -hmm. and in both instances here the film found a way to put just the light the slightest suggestion of verisimilitude into the mm -hmm. mise en scène. So that it it wasn't a pure fantasy or fabrication or mm -hmm. hallucination of the of the of the trigger, right? The drop of blood or the the dag the floating dagger. Both actually had a rootedness in the scene. The dagger is a door handle misperceived from a distance and in a certain light. And the the drop of blood is a misperception of a drop of water on her hand. Um, which actually does a really interesting job of, of kind of suturing together what's distinct about a theatrical environment where you've got a certain kind of artificial tension between the artificial and the material reality. So mm -hmm. it's a it's a real chair, but it's also a, a theatrical chair um, with film that can kind of play around at the edges of that. And that, I think, goes back to what you were saying earlier, Jen, and Catherine Hunter's performance where it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't a CGI manipulation of the body. It was just, uh, you know, someone with with a highly skilled, highly differentiated physical ability to manipulate. Uh, uh, Hunter, for those who haven't seen the film, is a is a skilled contortionist, and so uses that to maximum effect, um, along with other things going on. So, I mean, it's the, that those tensions between what we perceive in the space. Uh, and what's there in the cinematic space and the theatrical space, I think, uh, is is a really interesting tension that that plays out. So, highly recommend uh, everybody kind of taking a look at this. Mm -hmm. um, last last comments on the film to you, Jen. I um, to bring it back to the discussion of the the post racial casting, so to speak. I I, I actually wanted more from um, Denzel and and. Um, Joel Cohn here. Um, <clears throat> I, I think that they they do what a lot of people use Shakespeare for is to suggest that we're in this post-racial future. Um, but as as we've pointed out here so eloquently, um, my colleagues here have pointed out is that um, it, you can't it, you can't it's not <laughs> it's right there. And um, so I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall. Uh, listening to Joel Cohn and his wife, Frances McDormand and Denzel um, or Denzel talk about um, this because Denzel Denzel's in the news saying he wants you to look past the race. So was it a decision not to want to alienate people by bringing up very painful topics in current events? Was it a decision that they really believe that they can be post-racial? I mean, we're talking about a film version of a Shakespeare uh, play that has been done before in Voodoo Macbeth with uh, and and Orson Welles in very very problematic ways, right? Uh, and that we can just jump over all of those questions now. I mean, I I thought that you know I I, I sort of tip my hat to him saying I'm an amateur here, right? You know, uh, and um, you know obviously 
uh, felt that he could do that. Um, and, and so, but you know, what, what was he trying to do? He, that wasn't part of what his, his, he was doing a deeply personal thing and as was Francis McDormand, I think. And, um, and it was deeply personal for them as artists, uh, and not as much a social commentary. Um, you know, I was involved with Richard Schechner's Hamlet where there was a African-American, uh, actor, uh, cast as Hamlet. Um, and it was in, in the performance garage and it was, it was, um, performing garage. It was, uh, perpetually there as, as the central topic of what we were looking at. And so it was quite a contrast to that kind of a casting decision. So, um, it it's interesting. Well, your, your, your comments, Jen, kind of take us back, um, and actually lead right into our second uh, our second topic for today, um, which was that in addition to, we did a lot of watching for this for this episode, but in addition to watching um, uh, Macbeth, which is uh, of course uh, still accessible and streaming on on Apple TV, um, we also watched uh, Esther Kim Lee's talk, uh, Dainty as Needs Be, Madam Butterfly and Cosmetic Yellowface. Um, the talk was presented at, at the Duke University Center for International and Global Studies um, as part of what they have, uh, they're calling their Wednesday at the Center series. And it's open and you can find the, the we'll put a link on the show page uh, to the to the YouTube video. It's a great, great conversation. Um, for, you know, those of you uh, familiar in, in theater and performance studies will probably recognize uh, uh, Esther Kimley's work. Um, she's professor of theater studies and international comparative studies at Duke. Um, and also the director of Asian American and Diasporic Studies at Duke. Um, and the talk the talk actually comes from a, a, a an upcoming book project that she has called Made Up Asians, Yellow Face During the Exclusion Era. And she traces the development uh, in the talk of what she's calling cosmetic yellow face um, back to Madame Butterfly and then in, instantiations of it. And she's not just talking about um, about the opera, but but also very particularly about David Belasco's production. Um, and, and, and again, his looking for a theatrical mise-en-scene um, uh, based on art books. Um, and, and Lee has actually found and, and traced the books and the media imagery um, uh, and representations of how that informs, you know, Belasco, who, you know, in some ways was kind of, kind of like the, the forerunner of the hyper- uh, realist uh, or seemingly hyper-realist um, mise-en-scene of, in the theater. Um, and so she talks about, about cosmetic yellow face in this context um, as something that is, that is kind of between these elements of, of media and representation and theatrical performance, but, but more specifically as a form of racial impersonation um, of East Asian characters um, that rely generally on enhancing a performance's appearance, appearance to render their portrayal more effective. Um, so she contrasts this with, with clowning and a kind of uh, yellow faces mockery or also one based on different kinds of prosthetics and, and really looks at it more in the context of performance and, and how it can elevate white performers, um, uh, both, you know, beauty. Um, I think at one point she says, you know, how beautiful the East Asian woman is, how much more beautiful for a white woman to perform the East Asian woman, um, but also as the opportunity for white performers to um, to demonstrate their virtuosity, their acting virtuosity by being able to per convincingly portray 
uh, East Asian characters without the the makeup and um, and obvious prosthetics, but through a kind of attentive training and 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 mimicry. Um, and and you know she looks through a, a number of really important visual sources and, and kind of traces this history through different kinds of um, examinations. I I found it 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 quite fascinating. Um, and, um, I don't know if I, I, you know, I, I was not able to do it when I was listening, but I was sort of tempted to try to trace even more of the references that she, that she puts throughout. I mean, in, in general, it's one of those talks about, about performance where you can get so much from the still image. And then you start thinking like, I would love to see what that looks like in movement. And anyway, so I, I, a really compelling talk, um, you know what? What did what did you all think of this? Like, uh, you know, were there were you familiar with this history, or were there things that really stood out to you? It, it strikes me as being very, very much related to what you were talking about, Leticia, in terms of the you know naturalistic performances, or where where we see virtuosity, virtuosity, and also where where race gets attended to in different ways in within a performance. Yeah, absolutely. I I will say that I'm really excited for this book. I had, um, you know, the pleasure to be taught by uh, Dr. Esther Kim Lee while I was at University of Maryland College Park and specifically also take um, a class on her area of specialty, what is Asian, Asian American uh, theater history, which was really intriguing, where I could sort of see some of these ideas percolating for her because she started working on the book there. Um, so it's it's really exciting to see how the project has developed. And um, I'm actually really intrigued uh, how she formulates yellow face and actually gets us into the details of it. I think sometimes with any sort of face, you know, um, she, while I was at Maryland, she actually curated this symposium called blank face, right? So any face, it becomes like black face, yellow face, red face, right? Whatever it is, it comes to stand in for any sort of um, sort of racialized performance. And I think what Esther Kim Lee's really getting us to think about is like, no, there's something that's cosmetic yellow face is very different um, than other instantiations of yellow face, right? And if we actually really get in sort of this deep study, which I would love to see with something even like blackface or redface or any other sort of, um, th of these racialized performances, we actually uncover something deeper. And I, and I love that we're also sort of moving away from um, just Asian men, right? The portrayal of Asian men, but we're actually thinking about a very gendered type of yellow face, right? Um, and the use of makeup. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really intrigued by how she gets us to think about this. And I think one of the questions at the end of the talk, someone asked about casting and she was like, actually, I don't care about casting, which I love. Right. Like, I, I think she was like, you know, we get we always stop there. Like, why? Why are Asian folks not getting casted in Asian roles? She's like, actually, I'm trying to get to the crux of the problem, which she finds much deeper Um in the history that casting kind of stops. So I'm, I'm really intrigued in that move to not just place. Uh, racial performance within this sort of dynamic of casting um, mm. alongside really thinking about how yellowface is actually not for Asian folks. It's for white folks, right? Um, Sarah, as you, as you mentioned in, in your wonderful summary, right? It's it's for these white women to sort of embody this exotic beauty, right? It's it's towards the white performers end. So like yellowface does nothing but harm to Asian performers, right? We see something with Ali Mae Wong, right? It becomes a sort of referential point of like, well, you're not I don't even want to say Asian enough, but like you're not doing, you're not performing it right, right? Or like 
this is your embodied experience. So therefore, you don't have the same sort of level of training um, that these white actors do. So I'm, 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 I think I'm really excited for what she's doing with the book and really getting us to think deeply about the details of Yellowface, right? And how they're not always the same and how, the, how they're different and how they arise from different histories. I think in terms of rigor is something that I think Esther Kimley was, Dr. Ali was trying to uh, point us towards is like, the the ways in which people of color um, and in this case Asian American women um, are like not rigorous enough in their Asianness to be able to even perform Asianness um, in these roles um, and so it seems it's it's a problem that gets replicated I think over and over even today where it's like um, we just chose the best person um, we just we just um, whether it's like scholarship or it's um, Casting, which I know we are trying to get away from casting, but casting, um, it never, it, it always seems to come down to this idea that like, even if you are um, embodying your own lived reality, it's somehow not rigorous enough because it is, um, it's seen as natural for you, but learned for them. And like the pedagogical piece seems to be more, um, more accepted as like fact or as um or as rigorous um and so i think that that is something that um um esther's research is really pointing towards and also like leticia i had the chance to learn from um dr lee in her in a historiography class and one of the things she was thinking about too with the kind of of cosmetic yellow face is like the technology of makeup um to enhance like the actual tactile nature of uh, becoming, quote unquote, um, Asians as Asian American or any other kinds of, um, um, you know, racialized performances by white people um, of communities of color. So um, I appreciate thinking about it, even divorced from the idea that you are putting on something to like the actual embodiment of what that means, um, the kinesthetic yellow face I guess or like the um the mm -hmm. like embodied or performed yellow face that happens within um white women performers of this time period it also made me think of Jana Brown's um book Babylon Girls where she talks about a similar history with blackface minstrelsy of this being a history of white female embodiment rather than like a history of black female embodiment <laughs> and so I I think that by focusing on how we illuminate, like, like, I'm, I'm always interested in the idea that white women found freedom in embrace in like embodying these racialized performances. Like it's, it's like they, they were able to access a deeper kind of beauty in a way that women of color are still fighting to be <laughs> accepted as quote unquote beautiful, as feminine as women. Um, so it, it continues to um, to it, it. That's a really big intervention, as Leticia pointed out, to think about this as specifically a gender dynamic between white women and Asian women, um, because oftentimes the conversation around yellow face stops at like, you know, uh, Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's, as Dr. Lee pointed out in the talk. Another scholar that continually points this out is uh, Donatella Galella, a musical theater scholar, and her article feeling yellow is like detailing things that have happened in like 2013 
2015, right, about the ways that contemporary yellowface is still um, persistent and pervasive. Um, and she's specifically pointed out in musical theater, but um, I'm sure it could be pointed out in many other different ways. I mean, we have like Emma Stone doing it in like a movie, you know, like all of these different ways that um, that contemporary ye- yellowface is is still continuing to be a regular theater practice, as well as other forms of, of um, like, face, I don't know, blank face, as Leticia pointed out. Right. And I think like, even if we're sort of wanting to sort of broaden the discussion, we can think about, you know, Zoe Saldana embodying Nina Simone, who is Afro, you know, uh, Zoe Saldana is Afro-Latina, but like literally had to black up and was wearing like prosthetic nose um, to sort of embody this darker skinned black woman. Right. So like even across or within sort of, you know, racial racial groups that there is still sort of these, I think, dynamics we can talk about, like, you know, blank face. Um, And I really I really like Jordan's point about um, the kinesthetic nature of these faces, right? It's not just always makeup, but it's also sort of an embodiment, the physicality that is also um, important to um, these sort of authentic quotes. You can't see my quotes, listeners, quotes, um, (laughs) authentic racial performances. Yeah. And it's like, Uh, I think also the, um, it it speaks to the ongoing prescience of, (laughs) of Dr. Lee's research. Like it just doesn't, we need to go back um, because we're like, why is this happening? Why is Ariana Grande, you know, doing that with her face or doing this with her body or like surrounding herself with these aesthetic um, things to to signal racial ambiguity, quote unquote. So I'm I'm really I'm really curious about this book. I am so excited for it to come out. What's striking and and maybe maybe Dr. Lee talks about this in in the book is is that it is it is precisely around the same questions of performance without overt prosthetics. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think um, and and I and and what it speaks to, I think, even more so is the insidiousness of 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 racial mimicry and racial erasure um, mm-hmm. beyond the most overt examples of that, right? Yeah. So you know we can all kind of point to various forms of you know makeup and say like that is terrible, <laughs> um, but it's it's the co-opting of gestures, of voices, of 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 characters, of of identities, and and a presumption of who gets to move across those. Um, with with facility and virtuosity, which goes exactly back to what you were saying at the beginning of this, Jordan, which is like, how is rigor understood and by whom? And and then how does that translate into excellence and all the rewards that mm-hmm. come along with it? And I think we can see in acting a history of this, which, you know, extends beyond racial impersonation to, you know, who gets credited for playing a convincing queer person um, or who gets credited with playing a convincing person with disabilities when they are able-bodied and who gets, mm-hmm. you know, whether those are physical, uh, you know, disabilities or, um, you know, or cognitive ones, right? We have a long history of uh, very good-looking actors making themselves less so um, in various ways that then become, 
you know, a side of their virtuosity. Yeah, I love this idea of the virtuosity test. It ties back to Joel and Francis wanting to take the the Shakespeare virtuosity test, right? And then it seems that the the ultimate temptation, if acting is really becoming other than oneself, to try to find something that is so removed from oneself to embody is a kind of test, right? Um, I used to joke around with my friends, like, you know, uh, if you play somebody with a dis- disability, physical or or cognitive, you're going to get an Oscar nomination. <laughs> it's like considered to be um, the ultimate, you know, like being there and then even Forrest Gump and things like that, you know, playing these these sort of cognitive and, and physical others is, is a test of your actorly talent, which becomes rarer in the era of cinema where we we stop this, this training where we make the body plastic like Catherine Hunter and become these other things. Well, why why do I need to do that? I can just cast somebody who is that, or I can cast somebody who looks like that. I don't have to play an old woman. I just saw a clip of Melissa McCarthy had put on a gray wig for a, a headshot when she was 18. She thought it would be fun, like try to get a part as playing an older woman because she was a plus size actress um, and making a joke about that. But, you know, it's it's a joke today because nobody cast an 18 year old woman as an 18 year old actress as an older woman. Right. Um, Because we, we can just hire the older woman. But that doesn't always extend to racial others or uh, physical others or things like that. Like we put actors in fat suits. Right. Um, and, uh, and and things like that. So it, it's, it's interesting to where like we take that cinematic naturalism and where do we apply it when and why? Well, this question of of cinematic naturalism and where and why, um, I think, leads us almost perfectly into our third, yeah. you know, into our third it's topic, um, which, <laughs> which feels a little bit like, you know, and now for something maybe not completely different, but uh, but a little bit distinct Our so to our third our, our third topic, uh, we are talking about, you know, really kind of an inverse of, 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 the, of the last, right? So uh, the first two. So thinking less about how theater shows up in various forms of media and informs our reception and, and creation of those. And, and now thinking about media that is um, re- rethinking the boundaries of, of, of theater. So uh, a topic we've come back to a number of times here. But for this one, we looked particularly at the Immersive Storytelling Lab at the National Theater in London. And their new uh, immersive musical performance, All Kinds of Limbo XR, is, is an adaptation of Andrea Levy's novel, Small Island, um, created by vocalist um, uh, Nubaya, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Brandon. Uh, the production echoes the book's theme of Jamaican immigration, exploring the impact of Caribbean culture on the UK's music scene. The production premiered, and this is the uh, sort of most significant part, I think, uh, premiered at the theater in 2019 and has since been available for online viewing uh, since January 18th, uh, 2022. So this is still accessible um, as, as far as I know. Um, but what's interesting is that it it has played across different formats. So you can, you could see it in person. Uh, you can view it through a live uh, or through a virtual reality headset. Um, or you could place it in, see it in the physical environment using an augmented reality app um, on your phone or your tablet. Or again, people can go see it through their through their desk, desktop. So, so Jen, um, as someone who is doing a lot of a, a lot of work in and around user experience design and and how these technologies are intersecting uh, and drawing on theater and then and creating, what what did you make of this and 
And, uh, you know, is this the future of theater? Well, it's the future of something. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, what I'm preoccupied with a little bit here is the business models for innovation as I'm reading this. Um, also, uh, the way in which the dialogues we have about intermedia inside the academy are not seeming to touch the people who are making this theater, uh, which I wanted to talk about briefly. Um, and also the attempt to preserve a sense of liveness embedded in the design of this, which I want to want to talk about uh, as well. But um, the first one is that uh, it's no surprise to me that, you know, it's happening outside of our country that this kind of innovation is because we don't currently have a, a business model for innovation for theater, right? Um, we are, we don't have that space here in the United States where there's, you know, funds available for that kind of, of that level of experimentation. And I fully realize that those most innovative things are again, not going to come from North America or maybe America. I don't want to speak for Canada exactly, but, um, it, it's going to cut. I probably can't speak for Canada <laughs> either. Just, just an apologies to my Canadian colleagues. Yes. But I'll say in the United States, it's probably not going to happen here. Uh, uh, in the same way it's going to happen in other places where they have. And, and the the little anecdote I have about that is somebody from the Berliner Ensemble came uh, to do um, St. Joan in the Stockyards and I was cast in the show. And I just remember uh, it was Holger Teschke's um, Berliner Ensemble group and they were just sort of mortified that we we're being asked to put something together in two weeks. And I remember being 20 years old talking to the Berliner Ensemble. Do you know how much it costs to be in this space? Like, like the, the kind of disconnect, they had months to put together a piece and we were asked to do it in two weeks. And I was like so cognizant of how much it costs to be in the Manhattan theater space as somebody who was trying to produce there well. And they, they didn't seem to have any notion of that. Right. So there's that, that divide. And I'm, I'm interested to see where and when these innovations are happening. Um, so there was that part of the discussion, but this, Preservation of liveness was really interesting to me because they have people, they, they live streamed it in the moment, um, even though it was recorded. And like, you know, this is sort of that hall of mirror things. It was recorded, but then they live stream it and they have the other people who are there um, represented in blades of light so that you're aware that there are other people watching it. I have some thoughts about that, but I wondered what you guys thought about that. I, I have so many thoughts uh, <laughs> about this, but it, it feels from, to me, it feels like a, a kind of evolution on the, on, on the continuum. I think you'll, you'll con continue to see a convergence uh, between these forms. I do wonder how much, what the appetite is for, for, for virtual reality, augmented reality in, in live spaces um, and plant, and, I mean, I think the thing we talk about a lot is is space and the visuality of it, and maybe even the sonic. But I also wonder about time, like like who's going to go and spend time in a particular kind of environment? I, and I really wonder about destination performances versus including VR immersive performances versus um, performances that come to you or that you can encounter in the spaces you already are. You know, like, I mean, if I had to guess, I'd say that if virtual reality theater ever becomes really like mainstream, um, it'll happen in and around the mall or where people are shopping or around different kinds of, of transit hubs um, for things that you can't access in other spaces. Um, the way happenings you know, so you did, the way happenings did in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, a little bit, um, as opposed to like, I'm going to go to a particular theater building. Right. 
for for this specifically. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That that's one thing. Um, I, I it felt a little weird to me that that part of it this this desperate almost desperate. Is, that word came out of my mouth before I, I thought about it, but this attempt to preserve a sense of liveness, almost an anxiety about losing the liveness of the event. Uh, because like, as we know, it was recorded, um, but they wanted us to feel it, but this is live, right? So there's a deep intermediate anxiety happening here where we're trying to preserve some sense of this, but this is still theatrical. Do we lose that theatricality? Um, but I also do you think the do you think that's the theater as the theatricality is that is it like the anxiety around the theater as building, uh, theater as building or liveness, um, at, right? But I mean, like you can get liveness in lots of different kinds of mm-hmm. spaces, right? But like the National Theater is a very particular kind of structure, right? Um, mm. And you know, one of the anxieties that I can I mean, I, I don't own a theater or a, or a cinema. But one of the anxieties I can imagine if, if you did own a, uh, own a physical theater or a physical cinema is like people have gotten rather accustomed to and have learned that they can do things in other places um, and that what you have to offer is accessible in, in, in different ways. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I, that's not to say that everybody only wants to see their theater on Zoom, but, but there are many more options. And so if you have a theater building that you're trying to justify, does this become a way of doing well, that? Well, Long Wharf. Uh, just announced very recently that they are foregoing their physical space and becoming a quote unquote itinerant uh, theater company, Hmm. which in the news was spun as a way of fulfilling their dedication to be more embedded in their community, but was clearly financially driven after two years of surviving pandemic um, situations. And I thought, I thought, whoa, this is, this is something else like this idea of the theater space there should be anxiety about it. Uh, if I thought it was expensive to produce in New York in the 90s, how expensive is it now, right? Um, and I, so I do think that that, that about the physical space, about what makes it essentially theatrical, that question we opened this whole thing about with, uh, with uh, that Scottish play, um, and also just this sense of, um, you know, why is theater relevant anymore? Right. You know, this this it comes up over and over again, has since movies have taken off, will continue to. Um, and so that's kind of what I was taken with in reading this article. And the the second thing um, was this sense of uh, naivete that 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 they're playing with intermedia in ways that haven't been played with before, I thought was really interesting. I thought of you, Sarah, and your work and the history of your work and, and how they seem untouched by those conversations. They, they are naively going forward into um, this intermediate space without consideration of how um, other media revolutions have played into theatricality in the past. Um, and so that was interesting for me to look at as well. But finally, this use of VR and AR mixed is, is, a, is a very smart thing. I think to your point, Sarah, about going to a place with a concentrated effort, if I had to put my money on it, AR is going to be more prevalent in the theater than VR. Because uh, first of all, there's a physical impediment to VR. Uh, There's certain people that can't do VR. Uh, They have vestibular issues. 
they're working every day to overcome them and they get better based on how they put the horizontal and everything else in, in, in the field of vision. But there's certain people who will never be able to really get into the VR headset. And then also just the sort of cumber, I have a problem with my neck. And if I, after I've been on VR for a while, it's, um, it's very difficult, but AR is the way plus we lose all contact with reality and become disembodied. If you've been on VR for a long time and you come off there, like you have this proprioceptive attachment now to your virtual hand, it takes a hot minute for you to get back into your physical hand. Right. So there's some people for whom this is not even possible to take that much time out of their day, plus the disorientation that occurs after it. Right. But AR allows you to maintain contact with your real environment and still have this sort of augmented experience. Right. So I think that um, and then being able to choose which of those experiences you're going to have is also something really interesting to introduce uh, in terms of accessibility. Um, and then that. But then again, that anxiety crops up because you're having an audience who's not all having the same experience, which raises the question, are we all having the same experience when we're not using these devices anyway? Likely not. Um, but mo most of this was just uh, sort of uh, thinking for me, thinking about um, uh, theatricality and the anxiety we're experiencing now. Uh, the same anxiety that came around when, when, when film was introduced and how we're going to begin to incorporate this in the future. I don't think it's going away. <laughs> well, I think this accessibility piece is something that I'm, I'm curious about when it comes to any sort of digital production or digital things um, is that like, um, you know, technology is, I think it's too it's too full for me. The first fold is like financial, right? Like which which that article that we read today talks about um about like the financial viability of this, right? It's um it's really great to ha like be able to produce things digitally or have things sort of accessible with this idea that anyone can um access it, but also at the same time it's like does everyone have Wi-Fi? You know, do people have the skills? Um, and even when it comes to being a practitioner, what does that mean to like develop these technological or digital skills to be able to produce this kind of theater? So like it's highly specialized, I think, in a min in many ways that feel particular that could feel, I'm not going to speak too much, but could feel particularly daunting to someone who is not like familiar with the ways to even go about producing this. Um, I love the fact that it's highly specialized because there are people who are specialists who are able to do it, but also at the same time, um, it can be quite niche or it can seem niche to people who, who would like to continue to make theater um, or innovate theater in, in a particular way. And the other portion of it for me is that it is um, the thing about the digital or like virtual spaces is yes, they're accessible, but because people want them to be accessible, they're not, it doesn't seem like it's financially viable in many ways to like switch to an on di all digital or like um, a virtual environment as we saw, as we're seeing and saw with the pandemic, right? So like people are willing to come to your Zoom performance, but they're not gonna pay anything to come or they're not gonna pay over a certain amount of money to do so um, because there's an assumed, um, there's a, as someone who folks, uh, specializes in user, user experience, Jen, I'm sure you can talk more about this, but like 
there's an ex- assumed like um, ease of technology that again anyone's able to use it or like it's democratized in a particular way. And because of that like general idea that things are democratized and that like you can just get on to whatever and just post whatever or engage in it in wh- whichever way you want, um, it doesn't read to people as something that you should be have to pay for. Like imagine, imagine if Twitter was like, here's a new Twitter subscription <laughs> to be able to use Twitter. Oh my goodness. It would be a madhouse. Not saying that they would ever They did. Did they? You know I haven't been on Twitter in like, a year and a half, so I don't know. They have something called Twitter Blue. And it's like a subscription service that you pay for. Yeah. Like I, I well, would I, <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. Well but this was the this was the argument um, around the New York Times. Um, and, you know, and, and a lot of right. uh, online media and some people were able to monetize the online space really effectively. And, and, and then a lot of companies weren't. Um, uh, I, I know we're running a little bit out of out of time and I, I wanted to give Leticia an opportunity to, to comment here as well. So I'm going to put one question particularly to you so you can ignore it and say something else or you can answer it, which is that the one thing that occurs to me about this, too, and this and we we'll go to Jen's point on AR is we always presume that it's visual. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but as someone who has a daily commute, I almost always go through my daily commute with audio. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so what what is is there a way of thing and we've been talking, you know, there's audio theater and various other kinds of things, not to mention um podcasts. Perhaps some listeners right now are, you know, um on a treadmill or on a subway or you know, um, or in class supposed to be listening to something else. And, and, um, so, so, you know, do you, do you see that in the same, in the same way? Um, or, uh, we're going to give you a last comment. What, or are there anything else you'd like to comment on this, Leticia? Yeah, I think your provocation about audio is really interesting. I don't know how, I think it goes back to Jordan's points about like how you get people to pay for audio when podcasts are free, right? Like, or how do you get people to, want to sort of disassociate with the visual, especially because theater is seen as a very visual form, right? Um, right? You go to the theater alongside other things. And I think that if we think about theater expansively, if we're actually taking seriously something like the audio play, if a whole bunch of people hop on Zoom and they're just black boxes and you hop on and you're just listening, right? What's gained? What's lost? Um, do we have a, you know, Scottish play moment and be like, oh, this language is so beautiful. You know, like we, we're more attentive to the language and the sound. Um, so I, I think that I think that's interesting. I guess one of the questions I have around this particular article and new technologies and theater, I think we're really sort of leaning into this like COVID moment of like, we need theater to happen. So like the technology's great. And like, oh my God, it brings so many possibilities that we're actually often sort of overlooking also the traps of sort of innovation and new technologies. Um, specifically, you know, I, I operate in the space of like Black digital humanities, Black digital studies. So I'm, I'm always sort of curious about like race and technology and like what happens to this data, right? Um, and when does this data, like how long does this person consent to have this data held by this this entity? Um is this is does this data you know continue to sort of circulate? How about folks who are no longer alive, like, and we can create a digital imprint or a digital, you know, hologram like they did at Tupac at, at Coachella, right? Who he can't consent to that sort of representation of himself, right? But it's the whole idea is that it's embodying the real. So I'm I'm curious about some of those ethical questions. And 
one of the things that really came to my mind was that Black Mirror episode called Black Museum, um, where one of the characters um, is on death row. And uh, in order to sort of provide for his family, he allows it to sort of be like digitally uh, rendered and collected at the moment where he's put to death. Um, and then it's put into this museum and like this sort of replication of sort of like black death that people can just sort of like watch and look on. And I wonder how we not necessarily fall into that within theater, like this sort of voyeuristicness um, that that I'm always wary about. So those are some of the, so those are some of my thoughts. Okay, I lied. Any other final comments? I don't, you know, I I feel like leaving it with with that image from Black Mirror is like, you know, really rough. Well, I just want to say when you were talking about the data and talking about monetizing, premium content is really there right these days. Um, it's starting to change. There's some things in privacy and data laws that are changing, and it's interesting to be there to watch it. But capturing human behavior is a currency. So if you have anything that's going to capture anybody's attention for any amount of time, you have something that people will be willing to buy uh, the after effects of it, the secondary uh, effects of it. So, and there's a lot of examples and um, I guess you would call it, you know, visual performance art. Uh, there's been one uh, really interesting one where, um, you know, there's a, a floor and there's a polymer on the floor and the people have to lie on their body, their bodies on top of the, uh, Im the image that's on the floor and the heat of their bodies melts the polymer so that the image can appear. And the people in the exhibit have to actually figure this out together, right? That they have to do this in order to get, make the image appear. And uh, it, what's interesting is how the behavior is provoked and how they're able to figure it out, but it's really a provocation. And then the other thing is that they're being observed, right? Um, and I found out that the sponsor of this event uh, was Hyundai. Right. So there's uh, anything that allows us to observe behaviors, uh, it, which will then become translated into consumer behaviors. Right. Um, has currency by itself. So it becomes uh, and that's back to this business model of uh, what I think is going to happen is you're going to see these experimentations will only come into play here in the United States in full force once that business model has been demonstrated, that this is actually going to catch a, uh, a number of people beyond a particular turning point where that data becomes valuable and that opportunity to observe and learn from that human behavior as consumer behavior is seen as, um, a, as a currency. Um, so uh, did you say that that was sponsored by, by, you said Hyundai, is that Hyundai to those of us who, who don't speak? Yes. Yes, Korean. the auto, the the, uh, the the auto. Yeah. So so that's very interesting because the Tate Performance Room is sponsored by by BMW. Yes. Mm -hmm. So there's something about yep, the uh, automotive about, industry. About yes. Performance and, and car. We we are running out of time, so we're going to run through our drafts because I don't want to miss this important part. Um, listeners will remember that drafts are where we talk about our ideas, baked, unbaked, um, still in formation, random thoughts, or you know, for those of us who who don't always play it, plan ahead, whatever comes to us in the moment. Um, so, uh, Jen, I'll go ahead and start with you. Um, beyond, uh, you know, all of this, what is your draft for the for the episode? Uh, my draft for the episode is just continuing to think about um, what we've. Well, it's coming right from this episode now. The issue of accessibility and technology is uh, something that I work at quite 
quite quite in depth on a regular basis because as we're learning that designing for accessibility in all of its forms, diversity, equity, inclusion in all its forms is actually ends up to be not only the right thing to do, but the best thing to do in terms of innovation. When you design for somebody who is marginalized, you make the design better for everybody. Um, which is a very interesting thing to think about. So currently I'm looking exactly at um, issues of socioeconomic status, racial and cultural identity, and um, you know physical ability, uh, both cognitive and physical, and how it impacts our experiences of particular kinds of products on Web 3.0. Um, and so um, it's, it's a very interesting, and again, it's not only the right thing to do, it's where all of the innovation is. Um, so that's what I'm working on these days. Fascinating. Thank you for that. And Jordan? Yes. Um, my draft for this week is um, continuing um, a conversation I've been having. I teach black theater currently. And um, this week we talked about For Colored Girls. And uh, For Colored Girls is coming back to Broadway in April. I cannot be more excited for this production, which is we directed by uh, Camille Brown, um, and I believe what is what her first directing venture. Um, and I also wanted to sort of highlight a play that I will be teaching next week in tandem with For Colored Girls uh, called For Black Trans Girls by uh, Lady Dane Ididi. Um, this play signifies of For Colored Girls and specifically rooted in the experience, healing, and community of Black trans women. Um, and I, I just had the pleasure of, of reading the play and engaging it deeply um, in preparation for teaching it next week. And it's just been on my mind and my heart these past couple of weeks. So um, I encourage people to read it. And um, I believe it's available like for purchase on her website. Um, but yeah, I just, I really love that that play and um, I'm excited for the re-emerging cultural conversations around for colored girls, which has really impacted me. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm assuming that you'll travel to see that. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Fantastic. Um, all right. Well, well, I'll go, I'll go next and I'll just say that, you know, this week's or, you know, this month's draft was, was challenging. Um, I thought about station 11, the post pandemic, a uh, dystopian uh, TV show in which, you know, theater will take over um, the planet when everything else is gone. Um, uh, or that Ez Devlin designed the set for the Super Bowl halftime show. So this is the British designer Ez Devlin who did the 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 Compton set uh, for a very specific L.A. Um, hip hop based uh, West Coast uh, halftime show. Um, but my actual draft is I just want to. Um, bring people's attention. There's a, a wearable project that I find really interesting called Constructing Connectivity by Jessica Smarsh. It's been um, nominated um, uh, in the Ars Electronica uh, uh, competition. I think, I, I don't know where it is in its sort of the design, but it's, it's essentially a stroke rehabilitation uh, shirt um, that captures body movement. So this kind of goes to your point, your your last comment in the in there there, Jen. Um, uh, and it connects to an app that inspires, and this is a quote from the website, inspires creativity, interprets da data into visual patterns of written reports, quantifies and tracks progress, and connects the patient to community. 
And according to the, the description, the system incorporates environmental and economic sustainability. It recycles and reuses the technological components of the garment and provides a sty stylish accompanying shirt that can be worn long past rehabilitation. It is hard for me to wrap my head around all of these things happening in a shirt. That's stylish. Um, That's stylish. <laughs> a, a stylish shirt. I, I mean, like, like it's a shirt that addresses like economic and environmental uh, sustainability, and um, apparently um, is a stroke rehabilitation. I mean, this is this is like this is really an amazing, amazing garment. And so, um, obviously, I, 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 I do not need, uh, but I am going to buy this shirt because apparently. Um, I mean, it's probably like seventeen thousand dollars for one shirt, but but you know, it it will it will be one of the one of the greatest things ever. So anyway, um, really fascinating fascinating project, um, both in the way that it is described and 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 in the way that it is conceived. So uh, drawing attention there, Leticia, final draft yes, from I, you. Final draft. Uh, I don't know how to follow a stylish shirt that does all that. <laughs> But I will try. It solves racial equity. What? It solves racial <laughs> equity. This oh, what a value add. It was a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> My draft is quick and sweet. Um, I'm planning for the spring quarter uh, since Santa Clara is on quarter, the quarter system. And um, I'm planning out what that looks like and teaching theater or introducing theater to uh, first years. And I always go back with like reading plays, teaching plays, having them watch performance. Um, and I have, I really love this moment where we are, where a lot of shows or a lot of theater shows, musicals are being uh, recorded or show captured and then put on streaming sites. Um, and I know PBS had their old, it would still exist, but they had great performances. Um, and I really appreciate that as an endeavor. And I actually want them to do PBS to do more plays um, because I think musicals something really easy to sort of let people are really interested in sort of uh, recording and putting on streaming sites. But I would love to see like Fairview uh, PBS great performances because it's just a great teaching tool. And I think it also we're in this sort of conversation of like, well, how do we translate like actual theater, not like, you know, the the film we talked about in the episode, but like theater captured in a theater onto, um, you know, film or, or the screen or whatever. So I'm really interested in those dynamics and just asking, you know, whoever is listening, if you have access to do more of them, because they're great teaching tools to tell my students to like, oh, read this and then watch it. So you could talk about the differences between what's happening on the page and then how it translates to the stage. I mean, to, to be fair, Fairview would be an excellent XR combination, right? right? Because like, you know, then you could include in the dog, in the screen streaming version, the, the, the audience participation, um, part of that. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I, I could do this all day, uh, but, but, but can't. So, um, just a quick <laughs> note to say thank you to these wonderful folks, uh, who are, are here again. It's really great to see you all. Um, and to everyone, you know, happy uh, end of Black History Month. Uh, solidarity to everyone pro-democracy um, around the world in whatever form um, that comes. And uh, thank you. We will be with you next time. On Tap is produced and engineered by Charles Ketchaba. It's supported by the School of the Arts, Media, Performance and Design at York University in Canada and its Department of Theatre with undergraduate and graduate programs in theatre performance, production and design, and performance studies. 
You can find more episodes of the podcast and other information on this and other shows at ontappod.com. That's O-N-T-A-P-P-O-D.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's great if you subscribe, and we always appreciate listener comments and reviews. You can email us at hosts at ontappod.com or find us on Facebook by searching ONTAP and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. 